0: Amen. I want to talk to you a little bit about this morning rest. Um, This, for me, if there was ever a sermon series that I have um, probably failed in ways that I can't even begin to comprehend, uh, this would be that series. If there was a sermon series that I felt least equipped to preach... This would be that series. I am um, I have friends, very close friends in this room who um, who know me and oftentimes are constantly riding me about not resting. Um, I am a bivocational pastor, and my life is one of constant movement. I am, um, I work a a 40-hour-a-week job that sometimes bleeds over into 45 and 50, just depending on the week. And then I spend another 20 to 30, just depending on the week, um, in pastoral work, pastoral labor, serving, counseling, prepping sermons, whatever. Um, And this is a rhythm that I don't really know the end to. I mean, this is kind of the rhythm that I've always walked in. Uh, for the last 15 years or so, this is the rhythm that I've, that I've lived in. And so it, it feels sometimes um, natural. And yet, as I get older, I realize how unnatural it really is. You know, I've had, I've had experiences, some that I've shared publicly, others that I've just kept to myself where anxiety is rising for no reason. I can be in my car and there's nothing happening, and yet I feel this Pulse pulsing in my chest, and 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 all sorts of aches and pains that that kind of move and weave in and out of my arms and my back, and I and 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 I oftentimes say to myself, you know, I'm 38, I'm 39, I'm 40, I'm 41. I don't think I'm supposed to be feeling like this. And, and so much so to the point where I'm just like not even, I'm, I know I'm not supposed to be feeling like this, and I know it so much that I don't even tell anybody. I just feel it and keep it to myself, which is a, not that great of an idea, right? But I say all of that because I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying all of that to brag to you this morning about the load that I carry. I, I don't care if you guys know the load I carry. I'm saying all that to say that I empathize with you as you carry your load. Because I know the load that you carry is similar in many ways to the load that I carry. In a sense that you probably feel on a regular basis overwhelmed. You probably feel on a regular basis overworked. You probably feel on a regular basis irritated. Matter of fact, I want to start this morning by just asking a couple of questions of you. And you don't have to raise your hand, lest we incriminate ourselves. But I just want you to think to yourself as I ask the question, is this you? Question number one, do you prefer working more than other activities, such as spending time with loved ones or relaxing on the couch? Do you find yourself working on weekends, vacations, and evenings? Do you talk about work more than you talk about anything else? Do you use stimulants, coffee, Mountain Dew? to help you work longer hours? Do you have a hard time delegating tasks to employees because you fear that they won't do them correctly? Do you find yourself multitasking in order to get things done in your life? Have your long hours caused injury to your health or injuries to the relationships around you? Do you think about work or other tasks while you drive or while you converse with others or while you fall asleep at night or even while you're sleeping? Are you easily agitated and especially agitated if things don't go as they were planned? Do you feel restless on your downtime? Do you frequently answer busy when people ask, how have you been? The quiz is up. If you answered yes, To any three of those questions, congratulations, my friends. According to Psychology Today, you might, in fact, qualify as a candidate for burnout. That should feel unusual. That should feel abnormal. That should feel irregular. But for so many of us, that feels like Monday. That's just the life that we live now a life of perpetual, constant movement. In her article entitled, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation, Anne Helen Peterson says that burnout is the millennial condition. It's our base temperature. It's our background music. It's just the way things are. It's our lie. The same article go, uh, gives us a brief education on the concept of burnout. Listen to Ms. Peterson's concept of burnout. It's, she says that burnout was first recognized as a psychological diagnosis in 1974 by psychologists to cases of physical or mental collapse caused by overwork or stress. Burnout is of a substantially different category than exhaustion, although it's related. Exhaustion means going to the point where you can't go any further. Burnout means uh, reaching that point and pushing yourself to keep going, whether for days or for weeks or for years. One psychoanalyst specializing in burnout writes that you feel burnout when you've exhausted all your internal resources, yet cannot free yourself of the nervous compulsion to go on regardless. The article goes on to call burnout the contemporary condition. It's the water that we swim in, in other words. It's the air that we breathe. And unfortunately, that is not just for those who don't believe in Jesus, but that is for those who do believe in Jesus. Matter of fact, pastors are considered at the top of the list of candidates for burnout. In the, book, in the book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, the author John Mark Comer quotes a business scholar from a university who performed a five-year study on Christianity and Christians in the workplace all around the globe. And this is what he found about Christians in the workplace. Listen, busyness is a major distraction from spiritual life for them. It may be the case that number one, Christians are assimilating to the culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to number two, God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to, number three, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to, number four, Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to, number five, more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, and then the cycle starts over again. Jesus once said that, The word can be choked out. The word of God that is sown in the hearts of men can be choked out due to the cares of this world. The hustle and busyness of life has the ability to snuff out spiritual life. It's been said that if the devil can't make you sin, then he'll make you busy and i wholehearted believe i wholeheartedly believe that to be true when you look back on the moments that you were the most patient the most engaged spiritually in your life the most loving in your life the most joyful in your life very rarely will you connect those moments to hurrying think about your relationship at home are you most loving or most patient with your spouse or with your friends or with your colleagues, coworkers, when you are hurried or when you are slowly and moving about life with pace, healthy pace? Are you more patient the more hurried you are? Are you more, are you more connected with the Lord in prayer and meditation the more hurried that you are? The answer under these circumstances isn't easy, no. We are rarely in our holiest state, in our hurry state. In our hurry state, we're short, in our hurry state, we're intolerant, in our hurry state, we're fearful, in our hurried state, we're reckless and we're loose-tongued. Bottom line, in our hurry state, we're crazy, right? Just frazzled and, and our minds are rushing at hundred miles per hour. Nothing seems to be fitting in the boxes that we've laid out for our lives when we're hurried. Our prayer lives, are they most vibrant when you're hurried or are they, or do they feel distant, disconnected? Your scripture reading, does your scripture reading feel most productive when you're hurried or does it feel insignificant, almost irrelevant? Irrelevant. Our opportunities for connection and for community, are they, are they most prevalent in our lives when 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 we are living life at a frantic pace? No. We groan at the hour and a half that somebody calls us to spend at a missional community family meal. Oh, do we have to do that again? Why? Because our lives are too fast. C.S. Lewis's spiritual mentor, Father Walter Adams, was once quoted as saying, to walk with Jesus is to walk with a slow, unhurried pace. Hurry, he continues, is the death of prayer. It only impedes and spoils our work. It never advances it. End quote. So how do we get there? How do we get to a life live at a pace that increases our opportunities to grow with God rather than reduce them. That's what we want to talk about for the next couple of weeks. I can't think of a better place to start than Matthew 11, chapter, chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. Here's the passage that we find as the antithesis to the hurried life or the opposite to the hurried life. This is the passage that I've been spending the last year of my life trying to better understand and trying to better practice for my own soul and the soul of the people that God has entrusted me to shepherd, for my family's sake, my wife's sake. In this passage, Jesus gives us a promise of rest, a necessary promise, a needed promise, a sure promise. Let's read it together again. Verse 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In this passage, Jesus answers at least two questions. The first question is, who exactly is promised rest? And the second question is, how do we receive it? Who is promised rest? And let's make no mistake about this text. This, this is a message of salvation, In this text, Jesus is inviting us into an an eternal and abiding fellowship with him. This text is about eternity and about the things going on in our heart that would prevent us from seeing that eternity. This text is about sin, and this text is about how sin wears us down and how sin makes us weary and tired and how sin burdens us. And Jesus invites those of us who are battered and who are burdened and who are weary to come and find rest. Those who have been listening to Jesus would have certainly bore witness to this laboring. They would have certainly bore witness to his words, heavy laden. And their burdens would have been particularly heavy, given all of the laws and all of the traditions and all of the customs that were tied up in righteousness. In that day, in that culture, one had to prove his worth to God, basically, by creating a righteousness of his own. Pastor David Platt captures it this way. He says in verses 28 through 30, Jesus was speaking to self-righteous people who were burdened down with laws and rules and regulations and commandments. Many of these laws had come from God in the Old Testament, while others have been added on by religious teachers of the day. In Matthew 23 and 4, Jesus says that these religious teachers tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. These people were so burdened because they had failed over and over again to keep the law. And as leaders poured on more laws, the people felt more guilty. And the weight of their sin became heavier and they could not stand up under it. It is exhausting to try and find your salvation in your works. It is exhausting to look for God's approval based on what you're doing. Jesus says to those people, Jesus says to you and to me, he says to us, come unto me, those who are burdened and heavy laden. Those who are burdened and heavy laden with the need and the belief that you have to follow all the laws and all of the traditions and all of the customs in order to be accepted. Come unto me and you will be given rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me and you shall find rest for your soul. So here's an interesting question for all of us this morning. I've come to Jesus. Many of you have come to Jesus. So why am I still so tired? Some of us have been with Jesus for a few months, and yet we are still tired. Some of us have been with Jesus for ages. And we feel more tired today than we've ever felt in our entire lives. We feel more tired today than we did before we knew Jesus. So Jesus, what's going on? What's happening right now? Well, for one, we always live in the tension of what the theologians call the already not yet. Meaning that we have received and we are receiving. We have received rest. We are receiving rest. We have received joy. One day we will receive joy, joy fully and complete. We have received peace. One day we will receive peace, full and complete. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 through 17, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, we still suffer. We still struggle in our bodies. We still struggle in our emotions. And that struggle will remain until kingdom come. Thus, we don't fully rest yet. The rest has begun, but the rest is not complete. Yet at the same time, We should know all of these things in some form of progression, meaning that we don't fully know joy yet in Christ, but we do experience a foretaste of joy in Christ now. We don't fully know peace yet, but we do experience a foretaste of peace now. We don't fully know holiness yet, but we will experience or we do experience a foretaste of holiness now. And we don't fully know rest yet but we should increasingly be living our lives in a way in which we see and experience a foretaste of rest now. And yet many of us don't. And so the question again must be asked, if I have decided to follow Jesus, why am I still so tired? Quite possibly it's because many of us have adopted the culture's the culture's rhythms, and that we have traded and exchanged one form of burden for another. While some of us have confidence that works of righteousness don't save us, many of us can experience the rest that Jesus has promised is found in him because we've exchanged one type of self-righteousness for another type of self-righteousness. The righteousness of works for the righteousness of work. It was predicted that this generation of Americans, due to technology, would have so much peace of mind that they wouldn't even know what to do with it. It was predicted that we would have so much time for leisure. It was predicted that we would have so much time for community one day as a matter of fact, there was a Senate subcommittee that was held and they produced a report back in 1967. And that report said that by 1985, the average American would work only 22 hours a week for 27 weeks a year. Now, I don't know if anybody, anybody in here working that. But if you are, tell me where I can apply. In the 1930s, the economist John uh, Maynard Keynes made the following prediction. He said, by the 21st century, the American work week would be 15 hours long, leaving us with the equivalent of a five-day weekend. They saw saw the progression of technology moving at such a rapid clip that they said, it's going to do everything for us. We're not gonna have to do anything anymore. And you see that, right? You see, you see, it used to be you probably had what a good five, six, seven phone calls in you per day at the office? Man, you can you can you can get five, six, seven emails out in 30 minutes. Day's done, right? Let's get out of here. Used to, be, used to be, you know, you had to, to do all these manual things by hand. You had you to, you know, you, farmer, for the farmers, they had to do all those things by hand, right? Used to be it would take you, you know, a, a, a day's journey to go and get some bread or something like that. Now you can just hop in the car, ride up to the Super Junior, five minutes, you got your bread. Day's done, right? No, what have we done? We just added more. As we do, as we're able to do more. We add more, and we add more. And so now those five, six, seven phone calls that you would get at the office have turned into 500 emails that you're expected to all to read and respond to. That loaf of bread journey, now you can get it delivered to you, right? Kroger's, Kroger's would give you... you, you say, and, and now you say what? Well, since I don't have to... Find groceries, I guess I'll figure something else out to do, right? Let's add something else on. And we we add something else on. He believed that for the first time since creation, he said, this, this gentleman, this economist said that man will be faced with his real and permanent problem, how to occupy leisure. That's not our problem. Reading this in the 21st century sounds flat out crazy. We aren't struggling to occupy our leisure. We are struggling to find it. But this was the popular view back then. So what happened? This is what happened. A gentleman by the name of Derek Thompson writes in in his Atlantic article, workism is making Americans miserable. Listen very closely. We're going somewhere this morning. He says this. The economists of the early 20th century did not foresee that work might evolve from a means of material production to a means of identity production. They failed to anticipate that it would morph into a kind of religion, promising identity, transcendence, and community. You can call it workism. He continues, and he says that the decline of traditional faith in America has coincided with an explosion of new atheisms. Some people worship beauty. Some people worship political identities. Other people worship their children, but everybody worships something. And workism is among the most potent of the new religions competing for congregants. One Arthur sums it up this way, when our work becomes who we are and we derive our ultimate value and meaning from it, it runs the risk of becoming our God, the thing that we worship, bow down to, become slaves of. And that's what they didn't foresee a 100 years ago, that we would actually find our very center and being in the hustle itself. See, this is why many of us remain in Jesus and yet remain immeasurably fatigued. Because we have traded one form of self-righteousness, works, for another form of self-righteousness, work. My work is not simply a means of provision in my life anymore. My work is my life. My worth, my material, economic worth is my life. That new car that I must have. And I work my fingers to the bone and I work extra hours upon extra hours, why? So that I can have it. Why? Because it's who I am. I work hour after hour after hour, why? Because all of those hours are me. They speak to me. They are who I am. I find worth. Not in who God has called me. I find worth in what I do. I find my purpose. Not in God's finished work. I find purpose in what I do. I find my significance. Not in the crucified Savior, I find my significance in what I do. I find my acceptance in what I do. And family of God, anything that you find your worth, your purpose, your significance, and your acceptance in is now what we call an idol. Oftentimes, if I'm being real honest with you, the load that I carry is not a load for survival has nothing to do with survival. If I'm honest with you, the load that I carry is about value and worth. I feel important because of the load I carry. And my kids can say, oh, he's so important. Look at all the work he's doing. My wife can say, oh, man, look at how much he works. My friends, oh, you just don't know how much Brian works. Church members, oh, man, our pastor, he works so hard. And I tell myself that it's about survival. But inwardly, I'm popping my collar because of all the work Brian's doing. I have traded and exchanged salvation by works for a salvation by work. Now let me offer some caveats. There are some seasons in life where you do have to work harder than others. There are some seasons in life where we struggle financially. We genuinely bona fide struggle financially, and we have to work harder. There are some seasons in life early on in our careers where maybe we have to work harder than later on in our careers. There are some seasons where later on in our careers we have to work harder than early on in our careers. And there are certainly caveats where where there are seasons in life, whether we have a young family, and the young family obviously occupies more time single versus married, there's all sorts of different seasons in which work escalates or de-escalates. And there are situations where where work escalates or de-escalates. But besides those caveats, the danger is always there to find your identity and worth in the work you are doing rather than the work that has been done for you. And whenever that is the case, our quest for rest is virtually impossible. Family, if there is where rather, this is where many of us in this generation and in this nation find ourselves. We find ourselves working to death for significance. When we aren't working ourselves to death for significance, we are entertaining ourselves to death for significance. When we aren't working ourselves to death, We're drowning ourselves in social media or television, binging Netflix or online gaming for hours on end or playing Candy Crush or eight ball pool or words with friends, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we're just drowning ourselves in these things. And then when it's time to rise on Sunday morning, we say, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. When the moment comes for you to be refreshed and the, the moment comes for you to find that rest that you are so desperately seeking, you're too tired to drink from the well. We are restless because we are seeking our ultimate refuge and relief and rest in all of the places that's meant to steal it from us. But Jesus is speaking to you this morning and saying, come unto me, all ye that labor." and I will give you rest. All who are restless and because they, because they have worked themselves to the bones, I will give you rest. All who can't seem to find a moment's relief, I will give you rest. All who are depressed and, and burnt out and all who, can feel, who feel so disconnected from God because every time you try, to pray. It feels like a wall of distractions and noise is immediately erected between you and God. I will give you rest. Even those that have already come, he invites you to come again. And this time, pay a little more attention to his words. So how do we receive it? He says in verse 29, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So how do we, we receive it? We receive it through him. It's simple. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. The obvious interpretation here is that we embrace the yoke of Jesus when we come to trust him by faith. We accept him by faith, and when we accept him by faith, we're embracing the yoke. And when we come to trust him with our lives, he releases us of the burden of sin and brings us into a saving relationship with him, giving us eternal salvation and, of course, eternal rest. And we know that rest is possible because he declares that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And his yoke is easy and his burden is light because he has taken the burden upon himself. The burden that belonged to you, he took to Calvary with him. He died in our place. He paid the price for the sin debt that you left behind. We deserve wrath, but through Christ, we've been given grace. And not only grace, but we've been given eternal rest. And when Jesus refers to his yoke being easy, try to imagine two oxen, that are bearing this wooden beam between them that we call a yoke. And the older oxen is bound to the beam with the younger oxen. The older oxen is leading the younger oxen and carrying the bulk of the load for the yoke. The older oxen is leading and training and equipping the younger oxen. And the younger oxen is feisty, bucking all around like my... New dog, Asia, just crazy and wild. But the older oxen has been around the block. So you put the the yoke on the older oxen, or the the, the yoke on the older ox, excuse me, so he can or she can settle down the younger ox and teach the younger ox what this life is supposed to be about. That's what Jesus has done for us, that he's yoked us with himself. He's yoked us with himself, that he has bared the load, he's borne the load for us on our behalf. But there's more than just trusting him when he says, Come unto me, all ye that labor, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn of me. There's more than just simply saying, I trust you, Jesus, all right, and then turn around and just kind of walk your own way and do your own thing. See, in order to truly understand what it means to take on the easy yoke, we have to understand these words that Jesus is sharing with us. See, the ancient rabbis, when they talked about taking on a yoke, they were, they were talking about basically adopting their teaching and injecting it into all of life as a way of life. So now the teaching shapes and informs how I live life as a single. And the teaching shapes and informs how I live life as a married person. And the, and the teaching shapes and informs how I speak to you. And the teaching shapes and informs how I listen and hear from you. And the teaching also shapes and forms how I play. But the teaching also shapes and forms... I work. The rabbi's teaching as a yoke was meant to influence all of life. So when Jesus calls us to take his yoke and learn of him, he is not speaking of a one-time moment, he is speaking of an ongoing action. It's the reason why he adopts disciples to follow and then they follow him for three years. He doesn't just hand them a scroll and say, all right, y'all go do what I ask you to do. I'm out of here. But he invites them to do what? Learn what it means to live like Jesus. He calls you to deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to obey him? Nah. He calls you to deny yourself, to take take up your cross, and to follow him. In other words, to learn what it means to live like your Savior. Dallas Willard, he paints a clear picture for us when he says, In this truth lies the secret of the easy yoke. The secret involves living as Jesus lived in the entirety of his life, adopting his lifestyle. Our mistake is to think that following Jesus consists only in loving our enemies, going the second mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently and hopefully while living the rest of our lives just as everyone else around us does. He concludes by saying that that's a strategy that's bound to fail. I love the way that John Mark Comer summarizes Dallas Willard's thoughts that I just read to you. He summarizes it with one sentence. If you want to experience the life of Jesus you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. If you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. See, the secret to rest is to trust Jesus with your life and to trust Jesus with your lifestyle, meaning that the world around you is going to be trying to push you at a pace that will cause you to have the word of life choked out of you. The world around you is going to be waving at you, hey, 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 cares of the world, this is what you're supposed to be thinking about, right? Over here, this is what you're supposed to be thinking about. Don't you want that promotion? Don't you want more money? Don't you want the bigger house? Don't you want the bigger car? Don't you want, don't you want, don't you want, don't you want to be valued in the workplace? Don't you, want the, don't, don't you want to be elevated to the, top of the, to the top of the food chain? Don't you want to be boss one day? Don't you want to be CEO? Don't you want to have so much money that your kids never have to worry about money, even though Ecclesiastes tells you that somebody will inherit that and spin it all up and you'll never know the difference because you're in the grave? Don't you want, don't you want, don't you want, don't you want? And Jesus is telling you, no, 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 no. over here. Over here, follow me, and I will give you rest. When you look at Jesus' life, what you don't see is a man in hurry. When the, when Jesus, when the disciples are are going crazy on the boat, storms are tossing and, and storms are tossing and swaying the boat everywhere. Jesus, what are you doing sleep? Wake up. We're about to die. Jesus is catching extra winks. Jesus has people to heal, and on the way, he's stopping. I'm sure these people are like, man, Jesus, my daughter's about to die. And then somebody says, dude, your daughter did. See? See? See, Jesus? Jesus still just kind of not in a hurry, moves, heals the man's daughter, wakes her up from the grave. Lazarus, Lazarus dies, or Lazarus is ill, eventually dies. Jesus is slowly moving to Lazarus. He hangs out two more days in the place that they found him to tell him, please, Jesus, come see Lazarus. Never in a rush, never in a hurry. Mark records countless times Jesus moving out by himself to be with his father to pray in solitude. In silence. If Jesus feels the need to escape and spend time in silence and solitude, how much more so should you? Oftentimes the disciples are looking for him and he has stole away. To spend a moment peacefully, patiently, with pace living life. He invites you to learn from him. Not just to trust him, but to learn from him. Folks, we blame Jesus for a lot of the burnout that we've created. You think, I mean, think about the entirety of our lives. There's 140 plus hours, 100, I'm sorry, 160 plus hours in a week. 160 plus hours in a week. And I promise you, we'll, we, we will swear that the reason our lives are a mess is because of those, those measly three hours that I got to give the church. Sunday worship and missional community, family meal, just messing up everything in my life. I just need to rest. It's like, I haven't even messed with the round. Like, I round it to like 160. You can take the three off, and it's still 160. I haven't even messed with it. And yet we blame Jesus for the burnout that most of us have created on our own by living life at a clip that our bodies and our souls aren't meant to live. Follow the path of your Savior. slow down, put the phone up, cut the TV off, cut the radio off, put down the game controller, close the laptop, leave the office, cut off the lights, go to sleep. You know, we as humans used to average an hour, average daily 11 hours of sleep. Now we average seven in America. You know what happened? One, Edison invented the light bulb. We used to go to sleep. You aren't meant to live at this pace. Neither am I. Here's what I'll say then, as a closing. The reality is, is that we're searching, we're tr- we're, you know, we're searching and we're searching and we're searching and we're working and we're working and we're working because we, we have all these many dilemmas that we're trying to solve, these many problems, these many issues that we're trying to fix, that we're trying to repair. And, here, and here's the beauty is that, is that the greatest issue of your life, the greatest dilemma that you have has already been fixed. That if you had anything, if there was anything in your life to keep you up for days on end, if there was anything in your life to leave you in a perpetual state of worry, it was the fact that you were a sinner without a savior, And Jesus Christ has fixed that dilemma for you. He's paid that price. There's nothing left for you to concern yourself. There's nothing left for you to worry in such a way where you literally, literally forfeit any semblance of rest in your life. He's fixed the problem that was intended to rob us of all of our rest. So now, with that problem resolved, let us take on the yoke of our savior. Let us learn from him. Let us walk with him as he leads us. And in so doing, let us find the rest, not just for the life to come, but the rest he's trying to give us today. Right now. Let's pray.